This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of July 20th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 235 of Defender Radio. The news, be it online, radio, television, or print, can influence the world. One great photograph can show the heartbreak of a family, and one well-written verse can bring down political empires. But most of the time, the news is just that, news. It's the gathering and presenting of fact and opinion to the masses. Then there are the times in between, when the news is influencing policymakers and the public in a nearly imperceptible manner. And that's what we're focusing on with our two guests this week. We'll hear first from celebrated author, trainer, and dog behavior expert Gene Donaldson, who joined the show to talk about how the media got it wrong in a recent human-dog conflict in Hamilton, and why the term pitbull can bring up such dread in the masses and excitement in reporters. Then we're joined by our friend Cheryl Fink from the International Fund for Animal Welfare for an update on how a single piece of paper found by a media outlet brought down the government's entire argument for supporting the cull of gray seals on our east coast. Let's get started. Residents of Hamilton, Canada, and even the world were shocked to read headlines that exclaimed a man was mauled to death by a pit bull in the southern Ontario city. And they were even more shocked, less than a day later, when it turned out that it wasn't a pit bull. He did not maul the man and didn't even cause his death. How could major media outlets get it so wrong? Why did only one local journalist manage to tell the story straight? And what can we, as advocates, learn from all of it? To answer these questions, we were joined by dog behavior expert Gene Donaldson. So the news that has brought us together this time was out of Hamilton, my town, um, where if you read the papers and the online stories, a man was killed after being mauled by a pit bull in Hamilton. Some of the original headlines actually were, man dies after being mauled by a pit bull in Hamilton. And immediately the world caught fire as a result. Now within a day, it had been verified by the coroner um, so not just witness accounts, nothing like that. The coroner, the guy who literally gets the final word, said the dog attack, if it was an attack, had nothing to do with the man's death. Uh, uh, so, it, it, you know, for, for an old journalist like me, that was kind of satisfying to see everybody uh, get ink on their face, so to speak. But why is it that we as a culture are so prepared to believe that a dog labeled as a pit bull, which wasn't actually a pit bull, could have killed a man just out of the blue. Isn't it something, you know, first of all, that, that the, the degree of morphing and the degree of sort of correction in the story, I mean, and they've got ink on their faces, but I don't think they're going to get a significant comeuppance. So part of the issue, I think, is is that we've become somewhat tolerant, and at least in some quarters, of very, very poor fact-checking. Um, in other words, you know, in other words, if you can kind of, you know, throw the witness under the bus, well, that's what we heard from the witness at the scene, therefore it's okay, we can go ahead and print that. 
you know, they, they kind of dodge accountability for putting up that headline. And the problem is that a lot of people who just have cursory, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't read every single story to the end. I don't follow everything. But people who are, you know, it's not really their area, they're not in dogs, they're going to see that initial headline and they may not catch the whole correction unless that makes big news. And it doesn't always. The corrections sometimes get somewhat buried. So, you know, for those of us who are dog advocates, you know, it, it's a very concerning thing that that can happen. Um, part of me wonders if the, you know, the, the sort of the reinforcement and punishment system, you know, people who are doing, especially in this day of really fast news cycles, where they're rewarded less at a certain point for hits. In other words, for how much buzz can get generated, how many links, how many, you know, hits can you get on your story, how much, you know, interest can you generate is rewarded more than getting it right. Um, and so sensationalism does pay. And I'm not saying they're doing this consciously, but if unless they get things wrong enough that there is an offsetting punishment to them. So you become like Brian Williams and you actually end up shamed for being, you know, a, a really out of line with your reporting. Until it gets to the seesaw tips to that point, I think the payoff is in how much readership you can garner. And I think part of that is, you know, man dies by fatal pit bull mauling is just going to get more than, you know, dogs present at scene where man dies of, you know, a heart attack or the stuff that people die of. Um, and so there's there is built into the system rewards and punishments for the stuff that you and I would like to see less of. Absolutely. And when I was uh, in charge at a newspaper for a few years, I always said I'd rather have it right than have it first. And I, I drilled that into the the heads of the people who worked with me and i no longer work for a newspaper so that might be indicative of that i don't know yeah it's, it's you it's it boils down to having you having left the newspaper business yes uh, <laughs> but i'll but, even, but quite seriously i think your ilk is possibly i don't know i mean i don't know enough about it it's possibly underrepresented in at least the online business or who knows um one thing i was mulling you know as i was thinking about this story is a study which has not been done but which would be a relatively easy design would be to you know put you know float a couple of um uh fictional stories and then count hits and one with the headline of pitbull malls you know, child to death, and the other one with, you know, uh, you know, kid dies in dog attack, and then maybe a third one where a kid dies in some other kind of mishap. Have them all controlled, in other words, equal for in every other regard, except for the presence of the word pit bull, except for the presence of the word dog, and then count. And I would be prepared to put money on the story with the word pit bull in it is going to get more attention, more hits, get re repeated more, it's going to get picked up. And then, and so on, that, and that would sort of at least give us some evidence of what we're suspecting, which is that we, as a society, are consuming at, you know, and therefore, you know, providing the incentive for the sensationalizing of dog attacks in general and pit bull attacks in particular. I, I would absolutely agree. And um, I actually, I've done a series of uh, media sensationalism seminars, always focusing around animals, be it you know, quote-unquote pit bulls or coyotes. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the slides I always include was from an incident now several years ago 
Um, I have to update that presentation. I just thought of that. But uh, several years ago, uh, a man and his wife were hiking in Yellowstone, stumbled upon a grizzly bear with her cubs. Grizzly bear said, hey, what are you doing? Swiped at the man. And then everybody ran in separate directions. The man later died. That's the story. Mm. Uh, park official said, you know what? This is tragic. This is why we say wear bear bells. This is why we say be loud. Um, we're not going after the grizzly. And the headline of some of the more reputable news services were, you know, man dies after a bear encounter. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a little interesting, but it's not wrong. And then my favorite headline, though, and this is the one that always gets laughs, and it's from a popular network, said, uh, Bear Mall's man taunts wife. Wow! Actually said that. Taunts wife. Wow! And I, I still, to this day, try and envision what that would look like. Yeah. And I can't. But that's creative journalism for you. Fantastically uh, creative. I mean, the, the uh, it's just, it's not, not even in the realm of possibility, you know. It, it, well, I, you know what? The bear could have flipped her off. It's possible. It is. I mean, it's it's possible, but is it is it likely? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, now, in in the in this case, there is a lot we still don't know, despite mm -hmm. all of the media attention this has gotten. Right. What did and, the guy uh, die of? I mean, we we still don't we, really know exactly what did this guy die of. The coroner has not stated the cause of death. And I was talking with a, a, a former colleague of mine who still works in the media in this area. And he was one of the responsible reporters who had feet on the ground well into the night, the evening this happened, was back at his desk the next morning, did not call the dog a pit bull, um, did not say the man was killed as a result, did note there is a dead man and there are reports that the dog uh, uh, attacked him, mm -hmm. um, and that is to me responsible. Yeah. And I, I told I told him as much uh, at, when I started asking him some questions uh, about the incident. And um, one of the things he he did state, and this is to me uh, of vital importance in the story, is that nobody saw what happened. Everybody came out after it had started happening, wow. and he he was very clear about that to me because I said, "Does anyone know what prompted?" this action because all behavior has a cause right. and he said nobody saw right um but no one else picked up on that and again is this now a case of just bad journalism on the part of most other outlets or is this the kind of thing where we as dog people in our various roles and jobs and hobbies really need to spend more time trying to educate the public and the media about animal behavior, and specifically in, in urban centers, dogs. I, I do think that, you know, nobody else is going to do the job that, that we want to do, which is that if it turns out, as we are, you know, as it is emerging, that the dogs had nothing to do with this, um, that that kind of thing where, where there ends up being backpedaling, where initial reports are more dramatic than what actually went down, when there's actual mistakes, etc., we, first of all, I think we need to be the ones saying, hey, wait a second, notice how this happens. Um, and this has happened again. We should have sort of a, you know, a, a backpedal watch, you know, website or something that gets, you know, very coolly done where we really try and hammer at this. Um, so aside from even sort of basic education about 
the rarity of dog attacks, how safe dogs are, how unlikely, you know, you know, and then behavior stuff is a sort of a second tier. I think even a higher priority is that nobody else is going to to bring from the back correction page to the front the horrific job that these journalists are doing, if indeed it is horrific, and it sounds sounds like it is. Um, I mean, for all we know, this man died of, you know, he had a, a seizure or a coronary, and he fell down and died. And, you know, and if people look sort of like they're doing a lot of things, dogs often come to investigate. Dogs came to investigate. And then eyewitnesses or somebody said to somebody, well, who knows what kind of broken telephone resulted in somebody who's supposedly at least self-identifying as a journalist printing that somebody was mauled to death by a dog. Wouldn't it be interesting to sort of try and really trace how that happened? Um, and, you know, and how often does that happen? I mean, you know, but I think that, you know, dog attacks are so uncommon um, that, you, you know, their very rarity is part of the issue, that it drives the sensationalism. And so nobody's going to end up digging if not us. Yeah, and it is something I think that should be noted very clearly um, to, to our listeners. Wild dog attacks are, for instance, and we will say this regularly, more common than attacks by wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at the bold numbers, just in Canada, 32 million people, 3 million dogs, the vast majority of us live in very close space to one another. Um, when you look at the number of fatal or grievous attacks of dogs or, or conflicts with dogs, the number is statistically quite low. Um, it's fantastically low. I yeah. mean, in terms of, of de death hazards, it's, it's down there with, you know, death by lightning strike. Um, it, yeah. It's on that order. And I think the other, the very important part of that is... Uh, there is a great deal we can do about it. And I know uh, uh, my, my partner and I spent a lot of time as we walked dogs through the park saying, you can come see him after you've asked. Yes. Uh, and also holding back the one dog who is barking and wouldn't actually hurt a child, but sounds like they want to and saying, look, he doesn't yeah. want to say hi right now. Yeah. Whereas the black lab goes over and says, you can take me home. Yeah. Um, as all black labs do. But moving yeah. forward, um, the concept of Pitbull 2. This is something, and uh, I, I've got a, a number of, of friends I've made in recent years um, and a number of uh, colleagues and associates I've come up with as a result of breed-specific legislation in Ontario. And you are very aware of these issues. Breed-specific mm -hmm. legislation, for those who don't know, is what it sounds like. It is legislation in place at the municipal, provincial, or federal level. In this case, it is in Hamilton, both municipal and provincial, um, which states... If a dog is of X breed, then they are inherently dangerous and cannot be allowed. Uh, in the case of the Ontario language, and this is where the real sticking point has been for a lot of people, it is any dog that looks like a pit bull. Um, and that is really what upsets a lot of people. It's not just that you're saying, we don't want this breed of dog. And they list the typical, so Staffordshire Terrier, uh, American Pit Bull, so on and so forth. But it's any dog that looks like one, which frankly can be any dog. I mean, I've got a black and tan yeah. coonhound mix and people mm -hmm. ask if she's a pit bull. Yes. Um, and of course it supersedes uh, search rights, uh, uh, privacy rights, all kinds of stuff. Wow. Um, so what is our fascination uh, as a people with the concept of a pit bull? Not, not even the actual American pit bull terrier, but the very idea of that boxy head, 
small muscular body, ultimately a killing machine dog. Why do we seem so drawn to the idea of them? I'm not sure. My best guess is that we like clearly identifiable villains and villain categories. We don't cope well with ambiguity, with complexity. We like to boil things down. We like, you know, their entire genres, you know, zombie movies, vampire movies, superheroes, you know, this kind of categorization of the good guys and the bad guys, um, as opposed to, well, you know, there's sort of some confluence of genetics and upbringing and fluke and, and bad luck and right place, wrong time that will result in somebody getting injured by a dog. No, 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 no. Don't give me that kind of complexity. You know, give me the, give me something simple. Um, and, you know, the idea that there is a type of dog that is inherently more dangerous and that is, you know, got all these mythology, it's catchy. It's got very good stick. Um, and But it's so fantastically problematic from the standpoint of once this stuff gets going, people who, you know, fab, you know, fantastically uninterested in facts, I mean, if you look at stuff like climate deniers, um, to try and then correct this with factual evidence that there is no good evidence that pitbulls are overrepresented in fatalities or in serious bite statistics, um, you know, that, that we don't even know what the denominator is. We don't even know how many pit bulls there are. As you, as you say, to even decide what a pit bull is, given that there are not purebred registries for in most cases, and that there's a very kind of inclusive, overly inclusive category there, that's a problem. And then the other thing, which I, I, I don't, they don't often point out, but what I'd like to point out is, let's say tomorrow somebody did come up with some sort of convincing evidence that pit bulls were overrepresented. And this is completely hypothetical. They are not. But if somebody did, that we would preemptively, you know, disallow all members of that category, okay? It really is like saying if there is a category of human, some ethnicity or type or neighborhood or race that were overrepresented in some sort of crime statistic, we should therefore, before anybody has committed a crime, um, lock them up or euthanize them or, you know, put special watches on them, etc., is abhorrent to our society. That kind of very idea that it's not the individual who commits an act, but in their, you know, quote unquote, genetic category, that the fact that that hasn't bubbled to the surface here as sort of an absolutely, you know, revolting notion is, is really puzzling to me that we don't notice that there's an inherent kind of odious racism here. Um, that of course, there's no possibility that all members of a class are bad, um, even in theory. And certainly those of us who are in dogs know that that is just, you know, absolutely without a question, not the case in practice. And, and I wish that that got discussed more. What I find troubling when, when the conversation gets to this point, and amongst intelligent discussions, it almost always does. You then get into the debate of eugenics. You get into the concept of uh, minority report, all these fantastical ideas. Um, and that's, I think, well and good for you and I and, and the people similar to us on both sides of this divide uh, uh, between you know advocacy and trainers and behaviorists and dog lovers and animal lovers. But when we're dealing with the general public, we're dealing with politicians, we're dealing with the media, um, what can the general dog lover 
the the general I don't think that quite sounds right kind of person be doing to try and influence the society around them so we can prevent these ridiculous headlines we can prevent the ridiculous policy that comes a result of the headlines and ultimately we can uh, uh, reduce the number of animals killed as a result I mean, one thing, I mean, I think they, they are starting to get sort of smarter than, uh, you know, pit bull advocacy is starting to really highlight the glorious sort of, you know, uh, representatives of this type of dog, that there are wonderful, wonderful ones and that they need to be showcased. Um, when journalists screw up to the degree that it sounds like happened in Hamilton here, um, that we can, you know, dog people scream it from the rooftops. Um, and also note that, you know, and let's say somebody is not necessarily a pit bull advocate, but they're a dog lover. If tomorrow um, there was, let's say, you know, an effective, in, you know, even if it was enforceable, which is, you know, it's just such a nightmare to even think about enforcing such a thing, uh, they were able to successfully enforce a pit bull ban. You know, okay, so what dog is next? So who's going to fill the void there of being the next villain? Maybe it's your type of dog. Maybe it's dogs in general. Um, and if we really, you know, believe and we know that there's a net benefit to society of having dogs in it, benefits to our health, benefits to our mental health, you know, it is so many things that are good about it, let alone the fact that, you know, dogs have a right to be here. Um, you know, the, it's their planet too. Um, that we all, you know, we all could be the next, you know, kind of like, you know, everybody could be the next Charlie Hebdo. Every breed of dog could conceivably be the next Pitbull insofar as if there's a search for a demon, you know, uh, there but for the grace of God go you next. To learn more about Jean, find her books, or get in touch with her, visit academyfordogtrainers.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities, one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but Will we be good to them? Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. For years, the Canadian government has spent millions of dollars supporting the cull of grey seals in eastern Canada, claiming it was necessary to protect the ground fish stocks. 
But last week, the truth leaked out in the media. The government has absolutely no evidence to support their claims. To report what is sure to evolve into yet another full-fledged scandal for the Conservative Party, we connected with Cheryl Fink of IFA, one of Canada's top seal hunt advocates. The last time you and I talked, it was about seal penises. And you and I both spent a pretty solid week talking about seal penises with other people and writing about seal penises. And I've decided that I'm not going to bring up seal penises in this interview about seals. Um, so before we get into the, the news at hand, could you explain for, for the listeners who are not familiar with the Canadian commercial seal hunt, what it is and what the brief history of the politics behind the commercial seal hunt in Newfoundland and Quebec is? Okay. Well, the Canadian commercial seal hunt, what it is, is the largest hunt for a marine mammal anywhere in the world today. There's a quota for over 400,000 uh, seal pups that could be killed. And but luckily that quota hasn't been reached in recent years. Um, this year only about 35,000 animals are killed, which is still too many from our perspective. Uh, animals are being killed for their fur to make fur coats, luxury products like coats and boots and mitts. And despite what the industry claims, um, there's not full utilization of the animal. The meat is not used. It's mostly wasted on the ice. So it's very much from our perspective an unnecessary hunt. It's an industry that was important maybe a hundred years ago but it's no, no longer needed today. And the main reason it continues is because of the support from the federal government here in Canada, um, which continues to prop up the industry with subsidies, bailout loans, and other forms of financial assistance year after year after year. If it weren't for this assistance, I think this is an industry that would be gone. So it's something that I've been fighting for a long time, over 40 years now. Um, it's something that I feel needs to be brought to an end very, very soon. Uh, we're at a point where it is no longer economically viable to hunt seals. The products are not needed, as we said. Around the world, countries are closing their markets to seal products. The European Union has a ban on seal products, the United States. Um, and we continue to see bans um, on the important sale of seal products. This is an industry that really doesn't need to continue, and it's time for it to end. And uh, uh, speaking of bringing it to an end, uh, the Blake Locks Reporter, which is an online uh, news journal, uh, pretty much based out of the House of Commons, uh, revealed an internal government memo marked secret that stated there is no scientific link between gray seals and fish stocks. Now, to most people, you say, huh, that's interesting. Science changes. But this actually is quite significant in terms of the government's stance on the need for the seal hunts, isn't it? It is. I was actually pretty excited when I first heard about it. Um, because there are no commercial markets for seal products, uh, the government has taken sort of their fallback position that, well, you know, we don't need to kill seals for their products, but we need to kill seals because they're eating a lot of fish and they're preventing recovery of ground fish stocks. So what we've seen is a slew of reports coming from for Institute of Canada and others, and I know we're not going to talk about seal penises, but that was one of the reports proposing that we call 70,000 gray seals and market their penises as aphrodisiacs. Um, but again, tying into this idea that we somehow need to kill seals to protect fish stocks. This memo is very interesting because it acknowledges and admits that the government is very well aware that there is no science linking gray seal abundance and ground fish stocks. Um, it's it's very clearly spelled out here. 
and we've known we've known this all along and you know government kind of goes ahead with well we need more science it's unclear it's uncertain we know that you know and it's not just seals other predators as well marine predators removing just because a predator preys on another species that's not a good indicator of its impact on that species and it doesn't give any support for the idea that removing large numbers of those predators is going to help the prey species recover or increase in abundance in any way. We know that marine ecosystems are very complicated and very complex, and it's not as simple as a, as a seesaw where you remove one and the, the other one comes up. It's more of a complicated web, and where you remove one, you are in fact weakening the overall structure of the system. Um, so, so I, you know, it's, it's Interesting because it kind of says the government actually knows this, yet they continue to call for a seal call, um, somehow arguing that it will benefit fish stocks. Um, what this memo also acknowledges is that really calls for culling seals or killing seals are based entirely on anecdotal evidence um, and claims by fishermen who believe that seals are eating their fish or eating too many fish. And that's really what this is all about. You know, It's not about science. It's about pleasing fishermen who want to see seals culled because they view them as competitors. Um, so any any management decision that's made that involves killing seals, we know now is is not based on science. They know it's not based on science. It's it's purely politics or, you know, trying to satisfy trying to placate fishermen's beliefs that seals are responsible. And that's actually, to me, interesting because the whole competition for game is really what led to some of the original uh, mass scale hunts of predators on land as well, going back hundreds of years. Uh, uh wolves and, and, uh, cougars and bears would create competition for hunters who wanted deer, moose, elk, etc. So they'd go out and try and kill as many of them as possible, even though, as has recently been revealed, there is no scientific link between the two. But what's next? I mean, the science has been their sort of last stronghold other than the, the heritage line. So what does this mean for the seal hunt? What does this mean for the people? who are against it, and what does this mean for the politicians who have so blindly been flogging it? What we're looking at now is sort of an overwhelming amount of evidence that we don't need to be killing seals here in Canada, and we shouldn't be killing seals in Canada. And I think where we need to be pushing is to to look at the federal support and the subsidies that all of the millions of dollars that are going every year to try to increase the seal hunt or support the seal hunt that money is not benefiting fishermen. It's not benefiting communities in Atlantic Canada. We need to be using that money to somehow benefit people of Atlantic Canada and not using it to try to prop up uh, a seal hunt or to call for a seal hunt because markets are never going to appear for these products. There's no science supporting it. This is not a good use of Canadian taxpayer dollars. So that's something we're going to be really trying to, to emphasize, I think, in the upcoming election. Um, and I know the seal hunt isn't, you know, the top issue on everyone's mind when we go to the, the ballot box, but I think it's something that we need to be raising with our candidates and saying, look, why are we continuing to spend taxpayer dollars on this? This is something that is an easy, it's an easy thing to stop. There are better ways that we can be using this money, and it's something that needs to, needs to stop as soon as possible. To learn more about Cheryl, IFA, and the seal hunt, visit ifaw.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank my guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing supports. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.